Let's find our way to Matthew chapter 26, please. Matthew 26. In that book rack Bible there, you'll find that on page 1545. If you have a Three Crosses app, there's an outline there you would like to perhaps open up and get ready to take some notes. Follow along on your tablet, your smartphone, wherever you can be. Last week, we looked at Jesus in the Garden of Pain in this Passion narrative. And Jesus leaves that garden ready for the fight, ready for the spiritual battle that he is entering into as he heads to the cross. And today, everything we're going to look at is sort of the beginning point of what really gets nasty in the sense of the incredible sacrifice that Jesus gave for us. I mean, if you were watching a movie, it's that point in the movie where, you know, you start to perspire perhaps, your hands get a little sweaty, There's, you know that the tension is rising. And what we experience today as we look at Jesus at this point in the Passion narrative is that He's going to be taken away from His disciples. He's going to be arrested. It's all about His arrest today. And so let's pick it up right here in verse 47 of Matthew 26. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, friend, Do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of the disciples, one of Jesus' companions, reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Okay, we're going to go a little old school on this this morning because as I look at this text, I see, I see six things that sort of frame what this is all about today. And if you're taking notes, these are going to go rather quickly. We're going to camp out a little bit more on a couple of them. I see these four, four of the six are about the people in the scenes. And two are sort of the bookends that bring us into the scene and take us out of it. So if you're taking notes, the first thing I want to talk about is that there's an unlawful arrest. (laughs) There's an unlawful arrest. I mean, it's, it's amazing that it starts right off here in verse 50 showing us that Jesus, the sinless, spotless Son of God, was arrested on speculation, on suspicion, on envy, on pride from the religious leaders. 
No sin had he committed, arrested simply and only because of the wickedness of sinful people who wanted to do away with him. From a human standpoint, and the key word here is human, this is completely unfair. Now, you, many of you don't know this, but I, I was arrested once. Are you okay with this? 1977, I was arrested for trespassing so that I could go fishing. And, you know, I'd put all the excuses in the book. You know, it's a, it's a lake where everybody does it. My friend had, and I had decided that it was okay. You know, we saw the signs. We went right through the gate. And right over there on the peninsula, Felt Lake on Stanford University's property, <laughs> uh, I was arrested. And I was flabbergasted, frankly. I couldn't believe it that I was actually arrested. And I remember going to the court and standing before the judge, and thankfully, there was about 30 other people in the room that all were basically charged with the same offense. And the judge brought us up to the table there, up to the bench, and he said, you guys are all, you know, you're all guilty. I could all cite you. You could all pay a big fine. But if you promise me that you'll never go back to that lake, I will release the charges. And of course, we all said, we will never go back to the lake. I only went a couple more times. No, I didn't do that, no. <laughs> but my arrest was completely lawful. I had broken the law. And I'm so grateful that a judge was lenient. Did you know, I, I read some statistics on arrest. One in 25 Americans will be arrested this year. One in 25. Now, mostly for just goofy, dumb stuff, like your pastor doing goofy, dumb stuff. But there's another statistic that really concerns me too, and that is that they estimate between 50 and 100,000 inmates today are in jail for crimes they did not commit. There's a whole legal system that's out there trying to work on you know, unjust uh, arrests. We look at the life of Jesus, and Jesus was perfect. Jesus had committed no crime. It was completely an unlawful arrest that took place. Not only that, if you know Jewish law, every, every law of the Jewish tradition was broken when Jesus was arrested. He was arrested at night. That was not supposed to happen. If you were arrested under Jewish law, it was not to happen at night. There was an accomplice testimony, Judas. That was not right by the testimony of two or three witnesses, not just one. There was also, uh, it was illegal to bind someone who was not already condemned. Uh, the legal summons was all out of whack. The mock trials of the Sanhedrin was completely unlawful. All of it, every part of Jesus' arrest was completely unlawful. But here's the thing that amazes me. There's no fren frenetic move. There's no frantic panic in the life of Jesus when this thing starts coming down, it's as if he steps up and he's just ready for it to happen. Why? We said last week, the victory of the cross took place in the garden. And here Jesus is poised and ready to take on the battle. Who's in control in this scene all the way through is Jesus. And so verse 50, the end of verse 50 tells us that with that, the men stepped forward, seized Jesus and arrested him. But he's completely ready. The second thing I want you to see in the text, verses 47 through 50, is that there's an unthinking crowd. An unthinking crowd. 
a large crowd had come to arrest Jesus. And who, who exactly are these people? The text says to us in verse 47, they were sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. This is a crowd that was comprised of the religious leaders for this clandestine mission to take Jesus and put Him under arrest. Luke's gospel tells us that there was the temple guard there as well, the religious guard. And John's gospel fills in the detail that there were also Roman centurions there as well. So you've got sort of a rabble, a brute squad, so to speak, made up of common thugs, religious guards, and civil or government guards. Now, it's impossible to know just exactly how many people this comprised, but scholars believe that a minimum estimate would have been about 200 people. 200 people coming out across Jerusalem through the Kidron Valley and up into the place where Judas knew that Jesus would be. The crowd is likely comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, and they sort of make up what modern psychologists today call groupthink. Do you know what I'm talking about? Groupthink is that psychological phenomenon that in order to conform to the group, we dismiss any sort of rational behavior or rational understanding. I mean, I can't help but to think that in a crowd this size, mustered in such short a period of time, that very few of them really even knew the cause of what they were going after. It may not be an exact representation, but I think it's similar to the things we sometimes see on the news with public protests, where we know that there are people there sometimes leading those protests that really don't even know the cause or don't care. They just love to fight. They're brought in to stir things up, to agitate, to make things worse. And I have a feeling that that's kind of what's going on here. You have to ask the question, who really in that crowd knew Jesus in the first place? I mean, did they really understand who they were going after? Had they ever even seen Jesus, or were they just sort of caught up in the crowd? It strikes me that there are a lot of people in the world I know, maybe you do too, that, that follow the crowd in taking Jesus out. I, I saw this in youth ministry. A young person would give their lives to Jesus and be excited, and then suddenly they were surrounded by friends at school that were telling them there were morons for following Christ. It happens in our adult life, too. People in our workplaces who tell us that we've, you know, checked our brains out if we're following Christ. Why are we following a myth? Why are we following suspicious, you know, hearsay? How can you be a Christian? Comes from sometimes people with scientific background, people with academic backgrounds, people with philosophical beliefs. I mean, it never stops. There's a group think in our culture and a group think in our world that says, if you follow Jesus, you're an idiot. And so here in this crowd, this unthinking crowd, these people have come out to come against Jesus. But I have to ask the question, which of those people actually stopped to think about what they were doing? I was reminded of the story of Lee Strobel. I don't know if you know who he is. Lee Strobel is a, a, an investigative journalist. He, he went to Harvard Law School to be a, a lawyer, uh, then went into the journalist field and, and was a staunch atheist, thought following Christ was, you know, you just be absolutely ridiculous. Well, his wife converts to Christianity, and suddenly now he's got a problem on his hands. 
And so he went about the business of trying to disprove his wife's claim that Christ was the only one. In the process of his own personal investigation, he came to understand who exactly Christ was. And so because of that, Lee Strobel has gone on to become really one of our modern-day apologists. He's written many books, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for... If, if there's a book that says The Case for, it's probably Lee Strobel. And it's a beautiful, beautiful way to see how one person's personal investigation changed everything. Stepping out from the group think. I was thinking of C.S. Lewis, very similar also. C.S. Lewis was uh, a great academic, amazing literist, uh, you know, Oxford University, professor, Oxford University, wrote amazing works. And uh, because of his friendship with J.R.R. Tolkien and, and a few others that were Christians, C.S. Lewis, who was an avowed atheist, who had turned away from God as a young boy because his mother died at, I think he was aged nine or ten. And how could there possibly be a God that would not answer my prayers, C.S. Lewis thought. So he put God aside and went on and kind of followed the group think of the world until finally one day he decided to investigate for himself based on these relationships that were inviting him to know and trust in Christ. And C.S. Lewis, over a period of time and over a process, came to understand that, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord, He is King, and He is worthy of following, and he too became a follower of Christ. I love one of the things C.S. Lewis is known for saying, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. C.S. Lewis, breaking out of the groupthink and trusting in what Christ has said, because personally, he looked to Christ. And I don't know who's sitting here today or who might be listening to this message, but maybe you've been a part of the groupthink because of what culture says or society says or whatever your upbringing said, and that there's sort of a, a putting off of a, any personal investigation. You just kind of followed along with the crowd, just like this crowd here in Matthew 26, a crowd that just wants to do away with Jesus. Maybe today's a day to turn around in your own life and to begin to investigate for yourself. Or maybe that person that you've been praying for that seems so far away, just have a little hope this morning because maybe God will bring circumstances into their lives to turn them to a place where they personally look for themselves. There's an unlawful arrest, an unthinking crowd. Notice also verse 47 and 50, there's an unsaved disciple. <laughs> now this is where it really gets interesting to me. An unsaved disciple, verse 47, Matthew identifies Judas as one of the twelve. He's an inside guy. He's one of them. He's a Jesus follower, or it appears at least. But then verse 48, the tone changes when Matthew calls him, look at it there, the betrayer. In one sense, he's one of the twelve. But Matthew points out that he's actually a betrayer. If that doesn't stop you in your tracks, I don't know what will. <laughs> Judas was around Jesus for about three years. He was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Jarius' daughter. He was there at the feeding of the 5,000. He was there in the healing of the blind man. He was there for all the good works, all the amazing miracles. He was there. He was there. He was trusted by Christ to manage the money. He was there. He was in. He was in as in could be. <laughs> but the question then must come, if he was in and this was his reality, then what must we think of Judas? 
There's no, more na- there's no name more shameful, despicable, reprehensible, contemptible, or disgraceful than the name Judas. I mean, let's just do a little experiment. If you're a first-time parent and you're thinking about naming your child, <laughs> who's going to name their child Judas? You can just see the birth announcement. Announcing our precious little boy, Judas. Now, if your name is Judas here today, It doesn't mean there's anything inherently wrong with you. But I did a little research on that. There's only 500 people in the whole United States named Judas. You kind of wonder about their parents. The point I'm simply making is that we associate the name Judas with dark images of betrayal and sedition. But consider the true implications of Jesus' identity and His place among the twelve. I mean, Judas displays all the marks of a true disciple. He looks the part. He carries out what all religious people carry out. He stays in line. He does what Jesus tells him to do. But there's something inherently wrong with Judas. We know it. We see it. We sense it. There's this darkness inside of Judas that only Jesus sees. I have a friend I've asked different times, hey, how can I pray for you? And they say, just pray that I love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my mind. Hmm. That's a prayer I don't think that Judas ever prayed to Jesus. I don't think Judas ever prayed prayers like that. Judas had the appearance, but there was something deep down inside that was inherently wrong, phony, faker, fraud. In fact, Judas knew nothing of repentance. Even his last desperate act was one of remorse, not repentance. I mean, if you hate your life, for the things that you have done in, in view of your religious upbringing, and that's all that there is in terms of your life, your hatred for the terrible things that you've done in light of your religious upbringing, you may not be anything different than Judas. Judas hated his life too because he never understood the difference between remorse and repentance, a turning of his heart to the one who could change his heart. In fact, when you drill down into the, the, the real core of Judas's plan here, you see the depth of his true hypocrisy. The signal he arranges to turn Jesus over is what? A kiss. Now, in New Testament times, a kiss could mean different things. If you were, um, if you were a servant, you would often kiss your master's feet. It was a portrait of homage. Uh, If you were a peer and wanted to give honor to somebody, you might kiss the back of their hand or the palm of their hand. If you were endeared to somebody and loved them, you might kiss them on their cheek. And here Judas comes with this kiss on the cheek. Uh, Maybe you've heard the term, the kiss of death. Ever heard that? Mob bosses of a previous generation were known. You know those people that wanted family members to go away unexpectedly, surprisingly, and very quickly? And they would come and kiss, and, and the idea was, this is the person that you're going to take out 
The idea of it was is that it's a stabbing in the back at the same time of giving an affectionate uh, response. The Greek text gives us an interesting and somewhat eerie look at this. As Judas comes to kiss Jesus, it says in the Greek, the verb for kiss here is is actually in in the tense of ongoing. Judas fervently kissed Jesus in that moment. A strange, twisted irony of his conflicted heart. Maybe at one sense wanting to show affection to his master. How could he be betraying him this way? In another sense, knowing that he was doing this for his own sordid gain or whatever other motives that were underneath. There are a lot of religious people who are stabbing Jesus in the back by ruthless and egregious sins against others and against God Himself. In a sense, Judas is the archetype of humanity's depravity. In fact, if we were really honest, there's a Judas in all of us, isn't there? And only by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ can we escape this insidious desire in our hearts to turn Him over. Only Jesus can give us a new heart. And let's not forget, when we think about Judas, let's not forget that Jesus loved Judas. Jesus loved Judas in a way that is hard for any of us really to even understand. Jesus, when He sees Judas coming, says, friend, companion. Verse 50, do what you came for. I see such amazing love and grace in Jesus' response. We'll come back to that in a moment, but quickly let's move on to something else. There's an unlawful arrest, an unthinking crowd, an unsaved disciple, but look at this. There's an unwise reaction, verse 51, an unwise reaction. Notice that one of Jesus' companions reaches for and draws out his sword and strikes the servant of the high priest. Now, Matthew doesn't say who this is, but if I were to ask you the question, who among the twelve impetuous Quick to move. Oh, you, you gave it away. <laughs> yeah, it's Peter. Now, we know it's Peter because John uses Peter's name actually in this text. Now, why does Matthew not leave Peter in the text? Maybe, it's just speculated, that Matthew's writing this about the time that Peter is still alive. Peter's still around. And maybe Matthew doesn't want to throw his fellow disciple under the br- bus, you know? Now, I mean, that would be a little disconcerting, Peter reading this at some point. Hmm, thank you, Matthew. That was nice that you included my name in that. But, but John, John writes a few decades later, and so John, maybe Peter's gone. Okay, we can expose who this was. But let's not forget that Peter was not, he was not a soldier, he was a fisherman. And so Peter, and by the way, don't get too hard on Peter because Luke's gospel says that all the disciples asked Jesus, shall we draw our swords and fight? And Jesus says, no, put them back. But I think Peter says, no, not me, I'm drawing my sword. And he pulls out his sword and he's going to do business. I'm going to cut off the head of this reprobate. And he just, and he misses. And he slices off the guy's ear. He's not a soldier. He's a fisherman. Jesus, it tells us, Luke's gospel and John's gospel says that Jesus touched the man's ear and healed him. And his name was Malchus. John puts a name on this guy. 
Wouldn't you have loved to have seen Malchus's face in all of this? Wow. Interesting. We find a little humor, perhaps, the way Peter handles this situation. As if we would never stoop to such levels. Yet how many times do we resort to words or actions that are more violent, more oppressive than they are of love? Against things and thing, people that we don't appreciate, we don't like, systems that we don't like, we become very angry, better, very embittered. You're going to talk about my Savior, Jesus? And we forget that the kingdom of God advances by love, not by hate. I mean, you look back in church history and you see, you know, whether it's the Inquisitions, uh, the Crusades, I mean, even in modern day, bombings of, you know, abortion clinics, killing people. This is not Jesus' way. And Jesus said, don't you understand that love That doesn't mean that we don't have convictions. It doesn't mean that we don't stand on truth. But the way the kingdom advances is by love. It's won by love. And by the way, it would be a little futile. Verse 53, Jesus reminds His disciples that, hey, measly swords mean nothing in this situation. He said, don't you know that I could call on my heavenly Father and He would dispatch six legions, a 12 legions of angels? Wow. What is a legion? Twelve legions. A legion is 6,000. So Jesus said, don't you know that I could have called, I don't know why he said six thousand or 12 legions, but maybe one for each one of you disciples or one that the collective disciples. 72,000 angels against a group of 200 with clubs and swords. Who do you think is going to win that battle? <laughs> I mean, one angel would do it. So Jesus says, look, Put your swords away. Which brings us to the most beautiful part of this entire text, verses 47 through 56. There's an unbelievable Savior that we see here. Throughout this section, Jesus is seen as one who is truly unbelievable, amazing, astonishing, mind-boggling. Why? He could have run, but he stays. He could have fought, but he surrenders. He could have had an emotional breakdown, but he's composed. Why? Because he's in charge. He knows where he's going. And not only does he know where he's going, he's purposing to go there. This is his love for us, his love for you, his love for me. He's on his way to the cross, and nothing is going to stop him. This is why he came. This is why he's putting himself on the path of suffering. He's our Savior And isn't he beautiful? He asks, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me, verse 55. I've been among you, says Jesus. Have I shown you anything worthy of the treatment you're about to unleash on me? He's instructing them on the beautiful art of substitutionary sacrifice. He's saying... I've come for this. This is why I've come. This is why I'm here. I've come to give my life. John's gospel gives us a little more insight into the beautiful control of Christ. In John chapter 18, 
as they approach him, Jesus steps out from the crowd, according to John, and he says, who is it that you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And the Bible says in John 18 that all of them fell backwards at the power of his word. Jesus is quoting there from the Old Testament, Exodus 3.14, when Moses asked God, remember, who shall I say to Pharaoh that has sent me? And God says to Moses, tell him I am that I am has sent you. The Hebrew verb to be, I am, the great I am. John 8.58, Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. Who is it that you say, seek? Jesus, I am he. They all fall down. Who's in control here? It's Jesus. You talk about power, you talk about magnificence, and don't forget, beloved, according to Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and how long? Forever. This is our Savior, and isn't He beautiful? He loves us. He loves you. He loves me. He loves the wayward follower of Christ. He even loves the betrayer. An unlawful arrest, an unthinking crowd, an unsaved disciple, an unwise reaction, an unbelievable Savior. And finally, there's an underlying truth. Did you see it? Verses 54 and 56. But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that way to say it must happen in this way? Verse 56. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled and all the disciples deserted Him and fled Further up in the text, when Jesus says in verse 50, friend, do what you came for, there's likely an inference to Psalm 41.9 where the psalmist writes, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying all this is a part of God's plan. It's been written. It's been part of God's plan. The arrest, part of God's plan. The mock trials, part of God's plan. The cross, part of God's plan. The death, part of God's plan. Because something even greater awaits. The resurrection, part of God's plan. You know, sometimes we look at the randomness of our lives and we are struck by how it feels so off-putting at times, so discontented at times, so much discord at times. And for those of us who know Christ, isn't it great to claim the verses like Romans 8.28 that says, for we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His plan. His plan. His plan. Jesus says right here, it's all part of the plan. So why do we worry? Why are we so concerned? I don't know about you, but I have, I have worries in my life. This last week has been a difficult week for me. <laughs> Preached on the Garden of Pain last week, felt like I was in the Garden of Pain sometimes this week. Was that you? Part of God's plan. Part of God's plan. Thank you, Lord. 